This is Coda Radio, episode 478 for August 8th, 2022. Hey, good buddy. Welcome back to Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and the business of software development and the world of technology. My name is Chris, and sitting there sharpening his wood knife, it's our host, Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. Justice for Commander Una. <laughs> Spoilers. Hold on. We got to wait till the end of the show because we got to give people fair spoiler warnings. Ugh. You know? I got Wes Payne might be listening. I cannot get the guy to finish Strange New Worlds. I cannot get him. I okay. So we'll wait. We'll wait till that'll be. Yeah. Okay. We'll give him a clear disclaimer before we get there. All right. You know. Besides, I wouldn't. I mean, for all we know, Egon's on vacation right now. He's also behind, and we don't want to mess that up. I know Egon's just sailing the Mediterranean or something. Did he check with you? He, I, you know, it was weird. Nobody had been like telling me I'm a moron. Yeah, like who's going to keep us in check if he's out there swimming? I feel a little lost. It's just, yeah. It's like it's a boat without a rudder. And I don't know. I just at this point in our relationship, I expected a little more two way communication. Um, You know, if we're going to have a mascot and a Jesus of the show, they got to let us know if they're going to take a vacay. It feels like I mean, have have we become a little too homely for Egon? Do we do we have to chart it up a little some heels? Maybe, you know, maybe the codependency turns him off. Mm, That could be it. You know, maybe we should go back to ignoring him for a few years. Yeah, we should do the three (laughs) three day rule. You don't you don't call back. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but in this show's term, it's three years. Uh, we got some emails into the show at coder.show slash contact, and uh, they're both taking us to task this week, so get your flame-retardant pants on. The first one's not so bad, but Tyus says, I wanted to start by saying thanks for making the show. He calls it amazing. It is amazing. Uh, you know, it's helped me as a site reliability engineer understand how developers think and tools I can use to pretend to be a developer. Now, The thing I think you guys miss when you talk about how great it is to run your own GitLab is the scope creep and difficulty and troubleshooting that comes with it when things go south. I recently switched to GitLab. I was self-hosting it myself. I had an update go bad, and it actually made me rage quit. So now I think he's back onto a hosted GitLab. There's so many log files without relevant info. And he says there's 6,000 lines of chef config you have to go through, which brings its own service manager. And finally, the resource usage is just too much. Eight gigabytes of RAM for a VM just to keep a personal instance of GitLab running? No way. He says something like Git T uses an order of magnitude less memory. Do these things influence your decisions to stay with GitLab, to self-host, or to migrate to something like GitHub? Thanks again for the show. And I thought, okay, we should probably talk about the downsides of self-hosting when we do it. And I'm curious what your math is for something that you want to self-host in terms of resource usage and monthly cost and versus just using the service like GitHub. Yeah, but I feel like we just talked about this because I also am making the same change from self-hosted GitLab to GitHub. Oh, same reasons as Matthias hits on here? Yeah, same reasons. It was it, the, the, the cost of all the fancy GitHub stuff has gone down so dramatically and the cost of a certain host who we don't doesn't sponsor us anymore. Hateful bastards has gone up pretty significantly. Yeah, you, we did mention that recently. I remember that. Okay. So you're saying at one point the math worked out, but now the math has changed is what you're saying. Well, another another big change is GitHub actions have just become ubiquitous. And there's a lot of like very simple pre-made actions for all kinds of deployments to stuff like we'll talk about them one day, but fly.io and, uh, you know, obviously like Azure Heroku. We should totally talk about GitHub actions one day because that's a cornerstone to how we're running the new website. 
it's all GitHub Actions generating it. We could go we could go way off into the tweets on this because it is a I want to automate stuff and not have to pay people to do things dream once you get it set up. This is also a debate we're having a lot in self-hosted. Like, where do you draw the line on what you host yourself versus what you just get, you know, a service provider to do? The reason why I think we can't constantly be talking about the downsides when we decide to run this stuff ourselves is because it's unique to everybody. It's unique to the hardware you have available to you, the budget you have for this kind of stuff, the privacy and security requirements that you have, the sovereignty requirements that you might have. Like, all that stuff is unique to every freaking individual or business. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it could go application by application, too. <laughs> yeah, you really can nuance this thing. All right, Dom hates his new Mac, and it's our fault. He says, hello, guys. I've been listening to the show for some years now, and I always hear you guys talking about how great Apple hardware is, and for some time you've been going on about it, so you convinced me Mac OS is the best platform out there. At my current work, I was given the option to pick a PC or a MacBook, and I totally went with the Mac M1 because I was hyped by the Apple propaganda you do in the show. Eight months in, and I hate it. Multiple desktops are terrible. The window manager is terrible. Sending windows to another monitor is a pain in the back. Resizing? Oh, well, you have to use the mouse for that. The amount of customizations you need to do on this platform to get it into any decent shape is tremendous. I had to learn a sort of scripting language to use Carabiner. I thought a proprietary window manager would do. And then all other sorts of problems I've been running into every single day from taking a screenshot, copy and pasting with my right hand. Yeah, you know, not everyone is right-handed. And all of the arcane shortcuts I had to learn just hurt my hands. And then every time I use an external DAC, it doesn't work, but it works just fine with Linux and Windows. Don't get me even started on the dongles. It's awesome to carry an adapter everywhere when I want to bring an external keyboard or mouse. Just awesome. Want to talk about software compatibility in games? Virtual machines running on Mac OS? Database is not compatible with it? List goes on. I wonder if you're really using the Mac? Or do you just like looking into charts with benchmarks and talk about battery life? And by the way, this computer is getting really hot in the summer. Sorry for the rant, but I would like you to know that you're advertising Apple products for free. It's a spicy one. That's a, that's a ghost pepper right there. That's real hot. Yeah, habanero with a little bit of ghost pepper sauce. Uh, yeah, so I read this. You know, I gave it a lot of thought. I think there's a couple things going on here. One, personal taste. Everybody likes different stuff. But I guess because I started working on a Mac a long, long time ago, I do a lot of things via the keyboard. <laughs> and I maybe just know the keyboard shortcuts as muscle memory now. There is that. They really haven't changed some of them since, like, the late 80s. Yeah. I mean, yeah, really since, like, Tiger, right? They really haven't changed them since Tiger. But There are some key combos that I have been using since Mac OS 6. God damn. Yeah, yeah. I don't, they called it OS 6 or whatever they called it back then. It was like Macintosh. It was weird. Yeah. I'm talking, like, 1988. I, would, I will say that the recent UI updates have been pretty bad, right? And I think we've talked about that some. But to answer the direct question, yeah, no, I work on a Mac all the time. I'm on a Mac right now. I'm very, very productive on Mac. Uh, that doesn't mean you should be, though. They have a very liberal return policy. Go ahead and return it, right? I, I also work on a Dev1 all the time. Both both uh, platforms have advantages and disadvantages. Uh, the, the one that really I think is super fair in his criticism of Mac OS is the just software compatibility situation. It is much more restricted than uh, than my Dev One for sure. I mean, I honestly I can just install Windows crap on my Dev One most of the time, and it just works. When you said PC, I'm not sure if you meant Windows or Linux or both, or like some sort of Windows WSL. We've got we got some feedback on that as well. 
dude, return it. I don't know what to say. <laughs> just return it. Get something you want. Yeah, I mean, he he may be in a tough spot because it's a work it's machine. Work. Maybe a yeah. maybe a Sahi Linux will solve his problems. One oh, day, that's but, right. That's right. It was issued to him. He didn't buy it. Here's my philosophy, and it's it's just really simple. Is there's no perfect desktop environment. There's no perfect desktop operating system, and they all have significant upsetting flaws. And uh, it takes me an entire day to get Plasma configured the way I like it. It takes me, you know, half a day to get GNOME figured, configured the way I like it. And it takes me half a day to get the Mac configured the way I like it. The breakthrough I had on getting the Mac to work for me, I've mentioned it before, but you know what? I made myself a budget of like, I can't remember now, 60, 80 bucks. And I just said, I will spend up to 60 or $80, whatever it was, on third-party indie tools to improve the Mac experience. And then I, I refused to go beyond that. And I successfully got myself into a state that I think is quite usable. I've owned these apps for like two years now. I supported independent developers and now the Mac behaves the way I want it to. You know what? That is such a good point because I realize a lot of my keyboard magic is actually from Magnet. Yeah, you got to have Magnet. You got to have something like Magnet. Because I basically emulate the Pop! OS tiling. You know, I will say that it's to, to Dom's point here. I feel that way on Windows, right? Like I get why people use Windows. I get why they like Windows. I just don't care for it. So I only buy Windows machines like if I need them specifically for a job. I would if you don't have Magnet, by the way, go ahead and you should try it. There is a free alternative. It's on GitHub. I we we featured it in our tool episode. I don't remember the name, but yeah, we have talked about it. Yeah. See, this is where I think maybe I disagree a little bit with Dom. Is I actually think we have been quite critical of the Mac. I mean, I think we just went on a rant last episode. I mean, we spent like five years bitching about Apple. I'm just and saying. we've talked about the tools you got to buy to make it usable. I just don't necessarily hold it completely against the platform because I also have. I'm not even kidding you right now. I've kind of gone overboard. I have 15 extensions installed on my GNOME desktop. Now I didn't pay for them. And how is your desktop not crashing? See, that's see. This is where I bitch about gnome i just refuse to install extensions now i expect them to fail but they fail more gracefully now they just sort of stop working instead of taking out your desktop Mm. so they've gotten they've gotten it to a state now where between updates occasionally the extensions break but so should i should i try again you could yeah the way i'm doing it might be working better because i'm doing it all through nix and i've actually Mm. i've defined the gnome extensions through the nix config so nix is doing like a whole set of checks before it will build to make sure those extensions are valid and stuff like that. So, although I don't think it's bulletproof. You should probably explain what Nix is for people like me. Actually, to be honest with you, the Mac doesn't seem so horrible when I start to go down this route, does it? Because it's like, at least it makes sense, where now I'm like, well, I have this special Linux distro. So Nix itself is a really elegant, unique approach to package management and system configuration. Think kind of similar to Ansible, but just specific to your machine and defining everything in it. And it's a much simpler config. It's very clear, easy to read. I mean, I can do it, right? It's simple. And you go in there, you define, I want all this stuff on my system. And then it intelligently, like if I say, you know, add Docker, right? It goes through and intelligently figures out all of the stuff it needs and it builds it all and then deploys it. And then the great thing is, is that it supports rollbacks and it won't deploy unless all the checks pass, right? It has to build successfully first before it'll actually change your system. Well, that's pretty sweet. I mean, it is. It is very sweet. And so Nix OS is an, is a Linux OS built using the Nix package manager. You can put Nix package manager on Ubuntu or RHEL or whatever, though. Oh, so it's it's not it's agnostic. That's pretty cool. In fact, you can put the Nix package manager on the Mac. It's an alternative to Brew on the Mac. Ooh, I was gonna say if we're gonna dunk on Mac. Homebrew is getting rough. I mean, especially with the M1 transition, homebrew, I, I, oh my God. 
maybe it's time to try the next package manager on the Mac. So I just think we're a little more pragmatic about it. We don't really like have, a, you know, uh, if anything, I'm probably biased towards Linux. I don't have a Mac or, or Windows bias necessarily. But I kind of think Dom might have a Windows bias, to be honest with you. When I read through that email, I mean, when's the last time you heard people really referring to PCs, right? It's Windows, Linux, and Mac boxes. PC is kind of like the old Windows world, kind of like when an x86 box equaled Windows box. So you just called them PCs. Yeah. Well, the other thing is if you have lots of experience on one platform, you're obviously going to have an easier time on that platform. Like there is, a, there's absolutely a factor in that my, my mom was super early into Adobe based graphic. We called it graphic arts back then. So she was super into it. So as soon as Adobe 1.0 shipped, we had a Mac in our house and that was a long time ago. And so, you know, I've just those like command, the command keys to do things on the, on the Mac are just sort of been ingrained for 30 years into my memory. So I don't have a problem with it, but I could see somebody new coming over would. Let's talk about it at one of our West Coast meetups. We have a whole batch of meetups. I don't know, a rash of meetups? That's not the right word. A stash? No. A, a murder of meetups? <laughs> Meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. Southern Oregon, Sacramento, and then Southern California and Portland are all coming up in the next few weeks. Details at meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. And then if you've been looking for an excuse to join our super cool decentralized matrix room, we have a West Coast crew chat room where we're talking with locals. We're sorting out details, answering questions, uh, getting ideas. That is at bit.ly slash West Coast crew if you'd like to join that. And then it all ends at JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory down there in Southern California. And we have the ability to extend 15 invitations to the audience. It's not a lot, but these are small tours. If you go to coder.show slash JPL, you can put your name in the hat. I can't obviously guarantee you're going to get picked. It's a small group. But if you'd like to go, and you can guarantee you can be in the area on September 29th, coder.show slash JPL, we will be doing a small private tour of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And then we'll also have a meetup in the Sacramento area a little bit after that. So if you can't make the JPL tour, but you're in the area, we can still see you. All of that, again, meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. The West Coast Crew is bit.ly slash West Coast Crew. And then the JPL tour hat is coder.show slash JPL. <sighs> it's the summer, you know, these meetups. We do, we do these meetups in the summer in part because there is a bit of a slowdown in the tech world. And so it's a good opportunity for us to do this kind of stuff. But it's also for me, I think it's what actually keeps me going long term is these meetups because there's something really special that happens at these. So if you can make it, we'd love to see you. Linode.com slash coder. Go there to get $100 in 60 day credit on a new account. And it's a great way to support the show. Linode is the developer's cloud, and they've got 11 data centers around the world, so you can pick something close to you or your customer slash client slash friends slash family. If you like to build things yourself or you just prefer a one-click deploy option, Linode has excellent options. New user, experienced user, you've been deploying servers for 20 years, you've never deployed a server, Linode's UI strikes that balance. And I think what really matters, especially when you're putting your business applications on there, Linode's got the best support in the business. Just simply no other cloud provider has architected their business in such a way to put so much priority into customer service. I mean, I'm talking 365 days a year, 
you call Linode with a problem, they're going to help you. And they don't do like that game where they escalate you to like three different tiers. They just help you. And they're always rolling out screaming fast upgrades. I mean, they, they are their own ISP. So they've frequently got the absolute best connections out there. But also disk and CPU are just screamers on Linode. Cloud Spectator did a CPU benchmark report, which I'll have a link in the show notes. You can download that for free. They compared the other major and alternative cloud providers, like your big Duopoly hyperscalers, plus your other kind of alternative hypervisors that want to be like Linode. You know what I'm talking about. It compared them all. It looked at the latest CPU disk numbers, did benchmarks across all of them, and guess who came out on top? The report shows that Linode is by far the best in price, performance, and value. When you look at performance per dollar, nobody beats Linode. They've got great hardware, and they're 30 to 50% cheaper than the hyperscalers that want to lock you into their duopoly platform. So go over and try it. See what I've been talking about. Maybe take advantage of that S3 object storage. They've got some fantastic scaling tools if you want to integrate Terraform, Ansible, and Kubernetes. And like I mentioned, the pricing, the network, and the support, it all comes together to make something really special. But I think you got to go see it. I think you got to try it to really get the difference, to really understand why it's better than everybody else and why I've decided to run everything we run in the cloud on Linode. So go try it. Go get that hundred bucks. Really see it for yourself. Linode.com slash coder. Go there, get the hundred bucks, kick the tires, see what I've been talking about and support the show. Linode.com slash coder. So the topic of work from home has come up at this time. The conversation is starting at 11. Author and, and podcaster Malcolm Gladwell thinks that remote work is hurting society. It's going to create a worse recession and it's going to create employees who just sit around in their pajamas. I got a little bit of this audio and listen with an open mind because he might be making a valid point. I, I, I came into this all like, oh, what does he know? And then I played this for my wife and she says, I think he's right. You know, we've noticed this. I've started this little company, um, this audio company with my friend Jacob Weisberg called Pushkin, produces all of our podcasts and others. Um, and, you know, we've noticed that the people, like every small company, we have people who come and go. And the people who go are the ones who, this is an obvious observation, but it's an interesting one. The people who have tended to leave are the ones who are the most socially disconnected from the organization. So who came into the office the least or who were not, were based in another city and we hired them largely to do remote work or they have, they don't feel, it's very hard to feel necessary when you're physically disconnected. And, um, you know, as, as we face the battle that all organizations are facing now and getting people back into the office, that this People, it's really hard to explain this core psychological truth, which is we want you to have a feeling of belonging and to feel necessary. We, and we want a, you to join our team. And if you're not here, it's really hard to do that. It's not in your best interest to work at home. I know it's a hassle to come to the <laughs> office. But like, you know, if you work, if you're just sitting in your pajamas in your bedroom, is that the work life you want to live? right? Don't you want to feel part of something? There's a lot here. Don't you want to feel a part of something? Don't you need to feel needed? There's a battle to get people back into the office. Is this what you want to do with your job? What are your thoughts on Malcolm's take? Because my wife said that the one thing that she thinks he's getting at here is that 
when you're working in a hyper hyper creative environment, hyper collaborative environment, it does matter if people are in the same space together. But what I find fascinating about Malcolm is he's kind of or was sort of famous for being a remote worker. You know, he's written pieces for the Wall Street Journal about sort of the uh, I don't know, I guess you could call it the the tale of the uh, writer who works from a coffee shop. And uh, now he's very now that he's got his own business and he's got a staff. He's gone hard the other direction. And he says people won't feel needed at a company. They won't feel necessary is what he said if they're working remotely. Yeah. So, you know, I've been on the roller coaster remote work journey for a couple of years now, and I have just totally embraced the Kool-Aid. I kind of feel like the ship has basically sailed. And if you embrace a truly remote first organization, now, obviously, if you're like a factory, that's not going to work, right? If you're like manufacturing stuff. But I don't, I don't think it's going to go back and i'm pretty sure we're gonna see people's what do they call that revealed preferences right where they start treating uh you know treating going into the office as a a negative downside maybe with the exception of like folks in their 20s and major metro areas who you know want to go like party and all kinds of fun stuff but once you're like have kids and a mortgage or couple dogs or whatever that commute is just two hours or whatever it is for you of nonsense out of your day right why why do it and also from a small business perspective people who rent commercial real estate tend to be very litigious (laughs) you know their whole business model is i get you to sign a piece of paper and now you have to pay me regardless of the ultimate value of that piece of paper to you right it's called a lease so i don't necessarily think he's right now i understand that if you are malcolm gladwell who by the way himself has been working remote for years up until very recently and he used to write articles in the atlantic and places like that about how awesome it was that he would just like take his laptop and go to like some cool coffee shop and you know work from his couch and it was so freeing he could get in a flow state yeah i don't know it feels very you know super rich guy who hangs out with super rich, powerful, you know, Fortune 500 CEO types happens to mirror their revealed preferences because, well, that's the circle he's in. Right. And that's how he sees the world. And that is, to me, one of the more fascinating meta stories about this debate is from his standpoint, he feels like this is a quote. I'm really getting very frustrated with the inability of people in positions of leadership to explain this effectively to their employees, end quote. That's his perspective, right? It's a communications problem. We're not communicating to you effectively the benefits of you coming into the office. We just we just need you into the office because we have to have that high level of performance because we need to remain competitive. And you just don't understand. And you're just going to devolve into somebody who stays in their pajamas if you don't do it. And it's just, it's this fascinating two viewpoints. His is a top-down viewpoint. And the worker has a bottom-up viewpoint, right? The worker's thinking about the time in the commute. The worker's thinking about how they're, they're not getting to spend as much time with their family when they go into the office as they do when they work from home. And the worker's thinking about the cost of the damn gas because the damn gas keeps going up, or at least it's way too damn high. And those are factors. And then I also think if it's not going to happen this year, it will within you know 2023, 2024, 
there is a sound environmental argument to be made. I looked at the data during the lockdown and we had a significant reduction in greenhouse gas production in the United States. It was actually visible on satellite cameras like there was less smog. It was seriously noticeable. There's data that backs it up that the lockdowns reduced our carbon footprint. So I think you could pretty quickly find a logical argument that working from home is the environmentally friendly thing to do as a business. You, one of the things to be a green business is you should have X percentage of your employee base working from home to reduce their carbon footprint. And it just seems like such an obvious direction this is going to go. I'm, I'm shocked that some company hasn't touted their greenness as, you know, as a result of this policy change, which is also going to be giving the employees exactly what they want. So they'll be making employees happy and be boosting their brand at the same time. So it's a foregone conclusion. It's going to happen. It's just a matter of who figures it out first. However, I would like to just take a moment here and defend the commute. I think if you get the right commute, and I realize not everybody gets to pick this. And, you know, I used to live in a place where I had a real smooth drive. And then as the years went on, it became a horrible place to drive. But now I've, I've, you know, with Lady Jupes, I park in different areas where I can kind of choose my commute. And I have a 22-minute drive. It is 70 miles per hour the entire way, each way. And it very rarely has traffic unless there's an accident or something like that. And I find that 22 minutes sometimes is my favorite part of the day because it's this transitionary buffer between maybe a stressful work day and when I get home to see the wife and the kids. And so you know, whatever I need mentally to get in the state so I don't bring work home to them, I have an opportunity to do there. Maybe it's a podcast, maybe it's music, maybe it's total silence, right? Uh, maybe I take the long way, it's a 40-minute drive. And for me, that has been an absolutely essential mental transition time for me. And so I can, some days of the week, work from home, but I very rarely do it. I do sometimes because of gas, but I much prefer to separate work and home. And this is somebody who has been doing this for a decade, right? I've been self-employed for, I mean, even when I was working at Linux Academy, I was actually still working in the studio by myself like I was self-employed. There was no change. I was one day, one day I was working for another company, but I got in the same car, I drove to the same place, I walked through the same door and I sat down at the same desk and I used the same gear, right? I had the same stuff in the fridge. It was a really weird thing. So I have worked from home, quote unquote, for a decade, and I still prefer to have a separation between where I live and relax and where I work and focus on work stuff. And so the drive to me, you know, it's a 22 minute drive, right? So it's right in that sweet spot. It's not a big deal, but I, I think if you can get an arrangement like that, there is something to it. And I, I definitely prefer to have people here than always remote, but I don't need to do it all the time. We can do bursts of people being here sprints. Yeah. Well, the other thing to keep in mind too, is we're, we're saying work from home, but what we really mean is remote work, right? You don't necessarily have to sit on your couch five days a week. In fact, I would argue that's not, not a good idea. I mean, most people move around. I think they have to move around sometimes. I would think. Maybe it's just me, but I got to move around a little bit. Yeah, I, I, it's funny to see him make this transition, isn't it? I mean, I, I like his work, but it feels like he's a pretty smart guy, and yet he's not really kind of seen the dichotomy of his position and the and the shift now that he's a boss. He's not, you know, he sees things differently. Well, you know, it's like it's like any, you know, we, we had a story that we took out about agile and standups. Right. And it's the same thing. Once you're the manager and I've experienced this myself, once you're the manager, your incentives kind of change. 
right? You kind of do want to make sure that people are actually like, you know, on task. And sometimes that's hard to do when they're remote. You know, I don't mean to paint it as a panacea that it's the best thing ever. There are real challenges with remote work. Um, But there are, particularly, I would argue, for small companies, a lot of benefit to not having the albatross of a lease and in the insanely competitive hiring market not being limited to a, you know, realistically 20-mile geographic area. Yeah, that is a huge one, is the hiring. That's just, that's absolutely a huge one there. Just kind of on this topic, before we move on, Google's CEO sent out this really awkward email Revenue growth, by the way. So in the context, revenue growth has not been so great for Alphabet. It slowed to 13% in the quarter from 62% the same time the year earlier. So they're still growing, but it's a difference of a 62% growth versus a 13% growth. And so they're looking out there. They're, they're seeing what's coming down the horizon. Pachaya writes, quote, I wanted to give some additional context following our earning results and ask for your help as well. Hmm. He says, quote, it is clear We are facing a challenging macro environment with more uncertainty ahead. All right. He then adds, there are real consequences that our productivity as a whole is not where it needs to be for the headcount we have. He then goes on to ask his employees help to create a, quote, culture that is more mission focused, more focused on our products and more customer focused. We should think about how we can minimize distractions and really raise the bar on both product excellence and productivity. Is Google using the potentially looming recession to dial back the wokeness? Is that what I'm hearing? Or is he pet projects? How am I supposed to take this? When he says things like, we need to have a simplicity sprint to refine our focus, and we need to look at what we're focusing at and stay mission focused or else he says we're basically going to have to fire people we're going to have to reduce headcount if we don't do this uh i you know i don't know i mean certainly i've been super critical of some of like the well we won't work for the dod because you know we're some sort of weird hippies but google my understanding is google today is not google as it used to be it's extremely bureaucratic And this is my little pet theory, but whenever you hear someone tell you that their business is run completely by data, that's usually, you know, preferences and interpersonal stuff with like fake math thrown on top of it. And I'm pretty sure that's, I mean, look at how many times, how many chat programs has Google bought and released and killed and blah, 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 blah. It's, it, there's a lot of creep there for sure. They're kind of like the 90s Microsoft now, right? They've got like divisions who don't necessarily, work well together Uh, i mean this is this is all rumor and scuttlebutt i've been hearing but but i get i mean if the ceo is sending this out doesn't that kind of indicate that the leadership recognizes something's off something's not right because he says quote there are real concerns that our productivity as a whole is not where it needs to be for the headcount we have and then he says we need to have employees help us create a quote culture that is more mission focused and focused on our products more customer focused and minimizes distractions. And when he says a culture, they want to change the culture, a culture change, that feels like they're recognizing systemic issues. A culture issue is pervasive throughout the company, right? It is literally the culture of the company. It's the, it's the little lab dish they're sitting in. It's pervasive throughout it. And uh, I read from this 
that he recognizes there's an issue. And I would, I would wager there's nothing they can do about it. Just it's at, their, at their size with their momentum, it's too late. You know, they've, they've sort of set their course. I mean, it, I mean, you know, it sounds like the guillotine is coming down for, for a whole layer of middle managers, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we all know this. At some point, the process is good. You need prod- product and project managers, but at some point, they become a it becomes a self uh, perpetuating cycle, right? Like an infinite motion machine. Of well, the process does not serve the production anymore, right? The, you end up serving the process, and when you have lots of middle managers they're basically the guardians of process now, i'm not saying managers are bad i in many ways am one half and half right but it's but for a lot of them the only way they can scale their job is by following the process and so it just becomes a numbers game well then you have a project manager and like a, G- a director and then a junior vp and a senior vp and an executive vp and then you know up and up and up and everybody's got their they're a kind of paper trail that they need filled out. You see this a lot if you ever have to deal with like local government, where it turns out a, a lot of the time, the reason, and, the, and this is another issue that process-oriented people tend to, to overblow, there's all kinds of crazy shit. If you've ever had to get a permit for something, you know this. That makes no sense, except if you go back, like one time in 1982, there was some problem, and some city councilman or city councilwoman passed an ordinance because this shall never happen again, right? But when you have like 50 of those, you know, repairing a sidewalk takes about 200 pages of uh, just like worksheets and verifications. It's, it's dumb, and that's that's what happens as companies get bigger. The chief offender in this in our world used to be Microsoft. They were at the point where there was that famous cartoon of the different Microsoft divisions holding pistols at each other. Because not only did they have tons of middle management and tons of process, but they had to compete with each other because of their insane stack ranking system, which is every year they would fire 10% of the people. And it was, quote, data-driven, but it was really a popularity contest for the executives. And, of course, Google is famous for having the OKR system. So they have their own system. It's yeah. kind of like stack ranking light, right? It's, it's, it's the term stack ranking, you know, the Gen Zers freak out now. So I, I don't know. I mean... It's a very common problem for for big companies. It's a very very tough thing for them to fix. Some of them it's inherent to how they are are built. And I would think you might be right. This could be if you were a large publicly traded company that had a significant portion of like all of the ad sales in the entire industry and you were Google and there's lots of stockholders etc cetera, etc, cetera, right? You don't just announce a massive layoff. Well, that'll screw with your share price. Yeah. Right, that spooks the market big time. You layer it. You kind of start with some warnings that, hey, we're doing a hiring slowdown. We see some macro issues. That was two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Now, this week, we have this memo that leaked, quote unquote leaked. But come on, he knew it was coming out. That's why he phrased things the way he did. You send you send an email to 50,000 people. It's going to make it to the press. Yeah, he probably leaked it himself, right? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he may have. He may have. You know, why not? Just go to, straight from, you know, straight from the source. So then this this memo leaks where they talk about how we need to have a simplicity sprint and we need to refocus and we need to make sure everybody's mission focused. And he talks about the headcount and how he identifies that as a potential issue. You kind of could see like 
as maybe recession news picks up, if it does, and all of that gets worse, Google would just continue this layering strategy where they're kind of preparing the market so that way the market can price the news in ahead of time and then they'll announce the layoffs if that's going to happen. Well, and there's also the dark side of this, right? I would not be surprised if they do not at the upper echelons have a list of all the people who've either, you know, engaged in social activism that has embarrassed the company or definitely the defying them working on giant build multi-billion dollar government contract thing. That's you know, those people are going to happen. Their position, they're not going to get fired. They're going to get a nice severance package and their position is going to have been eliminated. They will no longer be working on that project anymore. Google's going to spin that down or that feature. Right. Because yeah. no employer wants to have to have an employee that is effectively untouchable in the organization. Right. It's, does, it's no such animal like that exists. Tailscale.com slash coder. Go there to get a free personal account for up to 20 devices. And you support the show. Tailscale is a zero config VPN. It'll install on any of your devices, any of your OSs in minutes. It'll manage your firewalls. It'll deal with your NAT. It works from anywhere. Devices connect directly to each other using WireGuard's noise protocol. It builds you a flat mesh network using the best VPN security in the business. I mean, you can just quickly and easily create a network between your machine, your mobile devices, your servers, your computers. It has ACL controls. It has sharing controls. I use it on my cloud instances. I use it on my virtual machines. I, I love it for that kind of stuff. Not to mention friends, machines, families, machines. <laughs> it's so useful. I've built my own private, flat, WireGuard-protected internet. Even when separated by firewalls or subnets, Tailscale makes it just work. And Tailscale recently introduced Tailscale SSH which allows you to establish an SSH connection between devices in your Tailscale network using your access controls. You don't have to manage any SSH keys, and the authentication connection is done with WireGuard. How great is that? And also, I should, I should probably mention Tailscale Send, an absolutely fantastic way, kind of like AirDrop for your flat network. You can send machines to all your different Tailscale devices. On my GNOME systems, I've got the Tailscale status extension, and it gives me access to a bunch of quick Tailscale functions, my IP addresses, and really every OS, there's a Tailscale client that'll work for you. Devices will go through your existing identity provider if that's how you want to authenticate them, which means multi-factor works. You can deauthorize machines. And the great thing is, this flat network is always online. Tailscale is really clever about how it does the traffic routing. So you're not sending unnecessary traffic over your Tailscale VPN. So I leave all of them on all the time on every OS I have. It's so nice. And it's got a GUI-based ACL editor. It's super DNS-friendly. It's dead simple to use. I mean, there's a million reasons, but when it all comes together, it's a game changer. There's a real, real, like, sea shift for me in, in how I do networking, how I get access to so many different web apps, stuff behind the LAN. And the best part is I no longer have any open ports on my firewall, thanks to Tailscale. I love that feeling. So go try it for yourself for free for up to 20 machines and support the show. It's tailscale.com slash coder. One more time, tailscale.com slash coder. Let's talk about some Linux workstations. So the last year wasn't a strong year for Lenovo's Linux representation, but I think the year or two before that, they came out with the uh, ThinkPad X1 pre-installed with Fedora. I picked one up. Pretty good little unit overall. As time goes on, I, I've become fonder of it. But we didn't see a lot last year. 
from Lenovo. And we thought, are they reacting to poor sales and thus pulling back? They didn't really communicate anything to us until recently. Lenovo's Mark Pearson's at DebConf 2022 in Kosovo actually gave us an update recently. And he says they have 30 plus platforms in the works to be certified to run Linux this year. And one of the things he shed some light on is that last year was just riddled with different problems that slowed down their entire production line. And I think you glean some insights in what it's like for a company to transition from making a Windows machine to a Linux machine. But first they had OLED panel refresh problems. Then they had Wi-Fi changes, Intel networking driver issues, AMD power issues, NVIDIA driver problems for energy certification, and then, of course, supply chain shortages. So they had really just one thing after another kind of slowed down their entire Linux strategy. But this year, things are looking a little bit better. Plus, they, in that downtime, did make some good connections with hardware OEMs and got things in a better state. But listen to this clip. Not only does it give us insight in one of the major differences in shipping a dev workstation that runs Linux versus Windows, but listen carefully to what he says at the very end of the clip. So uh, there were huge Wi-Fi component shortages last year. Uh, so they kept switching the Wi-Fi component on us. And again, same issue. You're running Linux, it's like, okay, we're switching you from MediaTek Wi-Fi. And so you need your new Wi-Fi driver. And then that has to land upstream. And okay, and we just back get it done. Like, oh no, we've run out of MediaTek. We're going to switch you for Realtek. And then we're going to switch you for Qualcomm. So it was relentless. We just, we, we and, and I will say one of the things that I think is very reassuring and I think is important for not just Lenovo, this is across the industry, um, but hardware vendors are doing these drivers. And that's huge, right? We have, I mean, Intel and AMD are kind of a given. They're going to be there. But you have all these other vendors for touchpads and Wi-Fi and networking devices and all that that are doing Linux drivers. And they're doing it sooner than ever before. You used to, you, before you would have had to wait a solid year or more before drivers started getting there. And you maybe had to reverse engineer it. No, the, all of the vendors are on it because, not just us, but because of the work the vendors are doing and because there is now genuinely a, a Linux market. And that's from, I don't know, as a Linux user, from my point of view, that's amazing. Now, he says, there is genuinely a Linux market. And this checks out, in my opinion. You know, you have the Dev 1. Obviously, you have System76 that is continuing to really innovate in that market. And you have Lenovo, who's putting significant effort into certifi certifying 36 systems to run Linux. AMD has hired an entirely new Linux division. They're just hiring like crazy right now for Linux engineers. In fact, AMD has gone from like hardly contributing to Linux to almost 40% of the changes committed to the previous kernel release, 5.19. And uh, they're just constantly adding drivers and refining things, getting power fixed because people are using these things as developer workstations. It seems to be like, at, you know, Dell and Dell, right? Dell led, led this with the uh, XPS Sputnik, right? Th there really does seem to be a growing market here. So you have this customer base that HP is taking note of, Lenovo's taking note of, Dell's taking note of, basically sustains System76. So when does the application ecosystem show up? If you got all this hardware selling, when do we get an application ecosystem? What's going on here? What are your thoughts? Don't you already kind of have one? Yes, in a way. You know, I'm thinking like, you know, when we said earlier, like I bought, you know, 60 bucks worth of third-party indie Mac apps. I'm talking like that kind of ecosystem. 
native applications where one or you know a small developer or a business or one developer is creating that application, he or she is living full time off of that. When do we get there? Because isn't that the next step? If we're supposedly seeing all these sales and all of these different hardware OEMs are getting involved because there's customer demand, then shouldn't shouldn't we also be seeing people willing to buy applications now? If they're willing to buy these nice laptops, wasn't that the whole Mac theory all along? Well, well, there's a couple of things going on here. One, it's still not that huge of a percentage market-wise. I would argue that buying the Mac in the application market is itself suffering. It's not what it was. Lastly, there is no blessed development platform for desktop Linux, which... A lot of commercial developers, myself included, I know people are going to say, well, you could use Qt, you could use uh, Vala, you know, all the, all the myriad options. But that's, uh, that's a thing, right? Uniform, blessed platform. I think maybe this proves it, actually, right? You, it can't just be the user base. You also have to have the developer pipeline, the path to monetization, the way to distribute the application, the blessed development platform. You have to have the documentation, the user community. Crap. So it's going to be Electron for the rest of my life then. Cool. All right. That makes sense. Well, I think on, so it's going to be fragmented, right? On, on Ubuntu, you probably are going to have a lot of Flutter development. But I'm not even sure because how many people are clamoring to develop, frankly, desktop applications for any OS now that aren't in some way Electron or like web apps? Yeah, that's, there's that too, right? Oh, my God. You, you're making me so sad because it's like Linux is finally arriving. We're selling more native Linux first hardware than ever, like nice hardware, like the Dev One and the latest Lemur and hopefully these ThinkPads. And yet the desktop is less relevant than ever, too. Except for maybe to the people that are buying these machines. I mean, there might be like admin, like, you know, DB admin tools and dev tools. But the other thing we're seeing is like, think about VS Code, right? VS Code shot a lot of the paid for text editor market in the face. Yeah. It did. I mean, I I don't know anything, but I get the impression that the Nova text editor, which was supposed to be like the TextMate successor brought to us by the good folks at Panic, just hasn't taken off. It's a Mac native, right? And it's written in like pure Mac, very like tied into the OS. Really, if you're an Apple person, you should love it. But it just can't match the one freeness of VS Code and the just ubiquitous plugin ecosystem. So, and EVS code is, I would say, the the Cadillac of Electron apps, right? It's very good. Just wanted to kind of get that sorted. You know, I had that. I had. I had the web is the future. You will all be assimilated. <laughs> Ask not what your podcast can boost for you, but what you can boost for your podcast. You know, I wanted to mention that one way you could give value back to the show is if you have these nice little, if you have a great tight little soundbite that we could use for the boost board, Boostergram. Uh, send them in to me. I'd love to. I'd love to uh, add more variety to the board. Mega Strike three boosted in with a handsome row of ducks, two thousand two hundred and twenty-two sats. I'm a duck, D-U-K duck, loaded with talent. Hey, Chris and Mike, as an aspiring software engineer, I love the show. You've talked in the past about your kids playing Minecraft. Have you heard about the controversy around the one point nineteen point one moderation update? I see Minecraft as an example of an open source game, and this update makes me worried about the future of the game and the community. I'm curious to hear your takes on the situation. Thanks for all your hard work. So the new feature they're rolling out in the 1.19.1 update is player reporting. 
So if somebody says something bad or harasses you when you're playing in a multiplayer environment, you can report them to Mojang Studios and then Mojang can review it. And if they decide to ban you, they ban you from all Minecraft Minecraft realms everywhere because it's all tied to your Microsoft account now. Uh, there's different levels of action that they will take. And uh, it's it's sort of taking it out of the hands of the server admins who run their own Minecraft servers and could ban people individually on a per server basis and putting it at a global level, kind of at Microsoft's level. And uh, as you can expect, there has been a massive backlash to this news. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of comments on Reddit and other platforms, mostly from people who run their own servers. There's also like some profane servers where like it's the intention is just to be ludicrous off the wall with stuff and they're worried that those could all get shut down but as a dad i'm curious to know what are your thoughts around minecraft and this player reporting feature and adding banning features like this so i I don't let my kid play super unrestricted right so he's kind of mostly playing you know locally or whatever but um i don't know does everything have to now be a moderated space well, they specifically say they want it to be more inclusive and they want to create safe spaces for people. That's where their goals, yeah. But what if I want to do a like Linux master race, Linux only server, and you have to be a Linux user and like it's a private server, I'm hosting it. I I can't do that anymore. Well, you could until you got caught. And then you'd be discriminating. Well, it's like I can't rob the bank. Well, sure you can rob it as long as you don't get caught. Yeah, okay. But... <laughs> yeah, I'm torn on this too, right? Because it feels like a, you know, all realms wide ban. You know, sometimes young kids are silly. They say something, they get too much sugar. They say stupid things online because it's, they think it's going to, you know, make their buddies around them laugh or something, you know, so that's a little harsh. Yeah, teenagers also, right? But it does seem like there should be some sort of facility to report somebody who is harassing people. But it does also at the same time seem like it should be a server-based thing and not necessarily a whole realm thing. Right, but that already existed. You could just ban hammer someone from your server. Yeah, I mean, my solution for my kiddos uh, has has always been local servers. I got, you know, a VPS with a Minecraft server on it, and I've got a Raspberry Pi that also has a backup Minecraft server on it, and they've got a, some local worlds, and I just don't really want them going on random servers. Do, do you know what my problem with this is? Now, I, I didn't even think about it. I didn't even know about it. But what what was okay today or yesterday, and it will be okay tomorrow, might not be in a year. Yep, that's very true. So, and this is a lot of this moderation stuff. It, I mean, I'm sure you and I could tell stories about conferences back in the day. Yeah. Where, oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah, right. yeah, I know where you're going. Yeah. And it's like, well, I mean, I could tell stories about starting up working in New York and just, you know, lunches and young ladies, waitresses, right? Like, it was just, it, the world was different. I don't know. And it's, you know, there was a, there was a period of time when the ankles were considered like, you know, risque to show, you know, you could have your boobs out there. That was fine. But your ankles, you covered those up. But even taking it away from like, you know, the, the ladies, let's, let's just say it's, you know, some words, I'll give a perfect example. When you and I were raised, some words you just didn't say, you'd get smacked or you'd get a bar of soap in your mouth probably. Right. Now I hear kids like, it's just so much more risque. It's so much more vulgar. And that's okay. Honestly, there was a time where if you were caught dead crying, it would undercut all of your credibility. You know, you would... Boys don't cry. Yeah. 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 You don't do I, that. You're, what are you, yeah. nuts? So, yeah. Things do change. Our standards change. And they don't always change in the direction you expect. 
And they don't always evolve into what might seem more progressive either. Sometimes we regress in some areas. Oh, some. I mean, what is progressive versus what's conservative? I mean, right now, I would say certain things are super more liberal, not in the political sense, but in the sense of like, you know, anything goes. And but like a lot of the speech stuff has become, I would argue, incredibly conservative. Sure, sure. Right. I, are, are we going to ban people from their Microsoft account on Minecraft if they forget somebody's name and that person takes us as an insult? I, mean, I It's both sides of the coin, too, right? You have, in, in some ways, you have more freedom of speech than you ever have, too, right? You have more censorship as well. You have all kinds of, yeah, there's just all kinds of dichotomies right oh, now. Oh, I, I feel like it's the, I don't think you have more freedom of speech. I, you know what, it's, I would be afraid to, like, stand up and speak at a conference and try to make the room laugh these days there's it's so easy to just get you know this really weird i mean have you ever been to r slash linux <laughs> just i don't know it's crazy it's and that's like one extreme right there's the extreme edgelord trolls who are just like i don't know doing their thing but then there's i would call them the the pc police who i think are just a lot scarier I don't know. So, so if if one of our sons or, or your daughter, well, your daughter's younger, right? She's probably too young. Two daughters, one boy. So I, I got on both. I'm you gonna got, have trouble you got on both, both ways, right? Oh, so, it's horrible. Yeah. It's horrible. Like if my son is just like mouthing off to one of his buddies, but when he's old enough to play Minecraft online, it, it, let's say him and your son are mouthing off to each other, and someone overhears it or whatever and reports them, have they both just lost the ability to play Minecraft for the rest of their life? It depends what somebody at Microsoft who's following a procedure decides. Well, Microsoft has already shown where they fall on these issues, right? They're pretty, I would say they're pretty uh, on the woke police side of things. So They're going to err on the side of caution because they're a multinational corporation. Yeah, but you're, you're expecting teenagers effectively. I mean, our kids aren't teenagers yet, but you, you know where I'm going with this. To be like these enlightened, socially progressive people and... I remember being a teenage boy. Yeah, and I'll add this too. Like for some of these kids, my kids would, I, I feel like they'd be disappointed, but they'd be all right. But for some of these kids, they've invested years in building these worlds. It's their life. And if you were to ban them, it'd be like basically socially banning them. It, it, I think it could be very emotionally damaging, as sad as it is to say. But uh, yeah, let us know what you think because uh, I think this one, I could, I could kind of land either way. We got another boost in from KP. With another row of ducks, 2,222 sats. He says, I'm upgrading my number boost here. Plus, uh, I'd say, let's get Wes back on the show sometime. I'd like a little closure love on the show. Mm, yeah. I'll liquor him up sometime and ask him about that. He also says that I wonder if, I think we were talking about something built, being built on Java. Uh, and he was giving us some feedback on that. But, uh, but he, you know what? I think, that, you know what? KP might be a Wes super fan. And how, who is not a West super fan? He says, here's an idea. Have West, have West join the show all the time, he says. It would be Mike the pragmatist, West the idealist, and Chris the referee. I like the idea. The problem is, is that, you know, West Payne is a working developer. He's out there building stuff and doing those mandatory stand-ups all the time. Oh. Every now and then, Wes will send me a screenshot or something or give me an idea of, like, what's his calendar look like, and it's just like... There's days he's got so many meetings, I don't know how he's getting anything done. Wait, can we make a Minecraft server where we consider stand-ups hate speech and just get people from Microsoft <laughs> account, man? That seems pretty legit. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Hey, you know what? Let's do a Fauci boost from Red Green Factor who sent in... Fauci? Yeah, 2048 sats. Boost. 
This guy has such a great voice, you know? It's very recognizable. All right, brace yourself. Here's why he uses Vim. And we got a lot of feedback on this, okay? I'm going to go through it. Uh, I'm also going to link to just some of it in the show notes that I think is the ones that are worth reading. Not to say the other ones aren't, but some of these, like, I don't know if you saw Brandon's email, but Brandis, Brandon sent us in this beautiful explanation of why he uses Vim. And, like, I totally get it after reading Brandon's email. So I will link to that in the show notes, but I wanted to read this from Red Green. I still use Vim because it supports my workflow the best. NeoVim supports LSP, and now I get all of the smart completion that VS Code has inside Vim. I have the power to customize the behavior exactly the way I'd like it to work. That's a recurring theme, is people are essentially building their own tools over and over again. Because uh, TrevDev boosted in uh, with a boost. Boost. He says, the reason why I use Emacs or Vim is because it's more accessible. It doesn't require almost two gigs of RAM. Uh, both Emacs and Vim are free software and tend to fall more in line with free software ideals. That matters to him. Both Emacs and NeoVim are centered around the minimal core, which he likes, and he builds it up. He's got extension languages from there. And of course, Emacs uses Elisp and NeoVim uses Lua, which he likes. This is how passionate he is. He comes in with a double boost to continue for another 2,500. He's like, I got more. He's sending another 2,500 stats to tell us this. He says, both editors have decades of investment from the communities at large. Emacs in particular has 40 years of community effort to build up the software. There isn't much you can't do with it as it will do whatever you can tell it to do in Lisp. So if you can make it happen in Lisp, you can ha make it happen in Emacs. NeoVim, which is extended by Lua, will eventually catch up to Emacs and parity. Those of us who choose a fully extensible editor do so because we enjoy that experience. Again. Can't disagree. If that's what you like, I can totally understand. You got to be like in your zone. And then a third boost to fall, to finish it off. Like I tell you, people are passionate about this. Another 2,500 sats. Third boost from TrevDev, which has got to make him probably the top supporter of the week. He says, for myself, I use Emacs and it does the following for me. Anything I want out of VS Code for code editing, aside from LSP, Emacs already did what VS Code could do now. Uh, it does Lisp too, but my agenda is I like to have an organizer and a personal journal, an email client and a newsreader, a static site generator without Hugo 5, with and without Hugo 5, IRC and Matrix client, a music player, a shell emulator, a word processor, a PDF viewer. He has all this up and he has time tracking, an invoice and a calculator, and then one terminal where he's got a ton of this stuff in Emacs. And that sounds pretty powerful. I get it. My buddy Alex from Self-Hosted, also really did a deep dive on Emacs. He made it sound pretty appealing. He really did. So I'm not switching, but I get it now. You know, the question that we asked was, why were people using these today over something like VS Code? I figured part of it would be because it runs in the terminal, which sounds like it's a factor, but it's clearly more than that. Okay, I think I might be done talking about text editors. Yeah, we don't want to, I don't want to get canceled by the, <laughs> yeah. the Emacs GNU people. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> All right, Wooden501, 3,000 sats. B-O-O-S-T. Just about rounding us out here. Why Vim? Because sometimes you just need a text editor, too. That's true. Uh, he also likes it for his Docker stacks, editing in Docker config. And sometimes he says an IDE can just get in the way. All right. All right, here's our last one. Thank frickin' goodness. I'm sorry we even asked. We got a boost from OA Guy one Thank you very much. And here's something for your trouble. 2022 sats. 
Text editing is an art. Vim and Emacs are foundational tools in that art. Learning these tools, especially Vim, gives you a chance to learn and master this art. Think of Vim as a monastery where you learn from the old wise monks. Some choose to stay in the monastery, while others go off to use other tools such as VS Code and JetBrains. Also, on a particular note, Vim opens instantly and is therefore good at incidental editing such as git commit messages, even the ones I write in Markdown. I use Vim. There you go. Okay. Okay. So All right. We, we, we got talked you. about Vim. We got it. Thank you. And Emacs. We, equal airtime. We're done. Emacs. We got it. And you know what? I actually do mean it. I do actually get it. So I do appreciate the insights. I, I, I used to be a Vim user. I use Vim for my git commits, although I didn't think of that as a particular case. But um, also, next up, tabs and spaces. Go. <laughs> All right. Okay. Let's do this. Tabs and spaces. Uh, thank you, everybody, who did boost in. We're doing something to try to keep this segment tighter. Is uh, I can't remember if we mentioned this last week. 2,000 minimum, I thought. Yes. We're doing a 2,000 minimum sat to get your message read on the show. I read 100% of all of the messages. I send the uh, the great ones around to the team, too. And every now and then we may pull a less than 2,001 up if it's super insightful or something. But just we're going to try to tighten up the segment a little bit. So we're going to set a 2,000 sat limit to get your boost read on the show. But you still can absolutely support the show and send a boost in of any amount you want. And it will get read. I can promise you that. And you can try out a new podcasting app to send in a boost. I like Fountain FM. I'll have a link in the show notes, which links you to my account. But also any of them at newpodcastapps.com are great, like Boost CLI and Breeze, which don't require you to change your podcast app at all. Also, thank you to our members. The new Coderly is out. We've been getting great results and reviews on that. So go grab that if you haven't yet. It's in your feed, your ad-free feed, or it's also downloadable in your members area. And towards the end of the year, we're going to be working on live, uh, live feeds for the Coder members and your own bat signal for your own way to get messages in on a dashboard. We haven't sorted out how we're going to do it yet, but those are all projects in the future, for, futures for our members that'll be rolling out. So thank you, members, at coderqa.co. Now, before we go, though, this is your disclaimer moment right here. There could be some spoilers coming up. Mr. Dominic has completed Strange New Worlds and is damned upset. I have been sitting here with a barely below the surface boiling rage. First of all, the allegedly enlightened federation where you can do whatever you want, you don't have to worry about money and blah, 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 is in fact extremely racist. And also gets goes from like super welcoming and open to like tyrannical in like Five seconds. seconds. Yeah. Right. It's like yeah. it's like we want to have peace with everybody. You don't want to talk to us, blow them out of the sky. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like Yeah. You did what with your genetics on a different planet that isn't even Earth? Uh well, we got we got issues with that. Yeah. So so okay. So the lovely Commander Una, who I she's right up there with uh President Roslin from Battlestar. And uh I gotta tell you, I'm ha- I, I think I like Sing too. I you know I'm big big fan of the strange new worlds cast some confusing feelings on that captain angel but we don't have to go there you don't remember which one that is do you chris i don't know i think i'm the one who commandeers the ship yeah 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 yeah. okay yeah but commander una saves the day literally gets up has her cheerios saves the day for the federation does everything the federation needs obediently you know follows orders does she do anything wrong no but just because of 
who or we could say what she is they simply take her into custody they simply arrest her because of her genetics if that's not the plainest version of racism possible yeah you're right it really i hadn't thought about it It, it, it's pure racism and i'm sure there's a good reason that was done to her right or maybe it was done to her without her consent or before she was born well she's She's not technically human, uh, so she's technically... She's a Illyrian. Illyrian, right. right. And I guess Illyrians F around with the genetics. Maybe they were once humans, but now they're like a fork of the human race or something like that. So what we do is we, on site, we throw them in a cell. For another culture's uh, yeah, traditions. Yeah, apparently. You're right. That is outrageous. I hadn't really thought of that. In fact, it's worse. You're right. If she was born that way because of, you know, who, that is literally like saying, oh, we don't like you because of what you are. Even if she was modified after the fact, you're right. It's technically, it's technically her culture. That's, that, that's a weird thing. I, I looked at it from a different perspective. I was happy to have it happen because I felt like, they so underused her character in that season that I almost felt like they needed to get rid of Soong because, like, every scene that went to uh, Noonie and Soong could have gone to Una, but they just gave all the scenes to Soong because they're trying to develop her character super fast. And I felt like Una was really... Isn't there a weird spinoff coming for her for Soong? Oh. I thought there maybe. was. I thought I heard there, something. Yeah. They did say it uh, like Comic-Con or whatever. Another two Trek series are in the works. Yeah, maybe. I think it's her adventures trying to like find whatever she's got. The... Remember they do that whole weird scene where they're talking about basically nothing. And she's like, I'm going to go do this. Sorry, Captain. You'll always have a place on the Enterprise. Right. Like, yeah. So I felt like finally they're doing something with Una's character where she's actually going to be part of the show for more than 30 seconds. Like there are. I think there's like actually an episode or two in this season where she's just in the background. Like there's an episode where she's just like sitting like in the background sitting on the bridge and she never really does like does anything. Yeah. And so I thought, well, finally, they're doing something with her character, at least. Well, she has her, you know, the the like buddy cop girl episode where her and uh, Soong and and they have they, she has a lot of combat scenes, though. Right. Like she does a lot of. Uh, yeah, but you know, she doesn't do a lot of first officering, actually. No, in fact, Soong does more of the first offering officering <laughs> than, than she does. Yeah. Well, you know, the characters are so similar in the way they're written, too. It seems it's I have to say, though, it's kind of a good sign that this is your complaint and not, you know, like they, you know, like we were really tearing Discovery apart. I started watching Discovery again. I, I'm going to get through it, but it's going to be a process. You know, I'm going to say something controversial and I apologize because I don't like to be this guy, but I really don't understand it. I am slogging through the Oroville and people, people write about the Oroville like it's like it's what Star Trek should be. It's people say, you know, like, boy, the writers of Strange New Worlds or Discovery should probably go watch an episode of Oroville. I find that the Oroville writing is usually kind of basic and almost every episode as the audience, you're almost always ahead of the cast and just waiting for the cast to come to the realization that they need to come to to solve the plot. And I find that very frustrating because it often like relies on somebody not sharing a secret just because or somebody not doing their job right or somebody being out of character. And I just I just watched an episode of the Orville where it was heart wrenching what they did to um, the pilot. And he gets trapped back in time and I won't go into too much detail, but like the entire time, I'm just not really connecting with the motivations of the captain or the first officer. I find the effects to be beautiful. I think they might even be better than Strange New Worlds. Almost, it feels like it has uh, flavors of the fan versions of Star Trek. I don't know if you've ever seen some of the Star Trek recreations on YouTube. 
I have not. Uh, it just feels a little off, right? And I, I don't buy Seth as a captain, and he's kind of got a face that I just don't believe. Okay, Trump. He didn't. He, he wasn't cast correctly. Basically, he wouldn't be casted if he wasn't Seth Meyers who created the show and is rich and famous and super important to the studio, right? That's why he's the captain. Uh, Seth, you can find videos of Seth playing Captain Kirk on YouTube as a young kid. They're pretty adorably uh, dorky. I mean, he's clearly a true Star Trek fan. And he's clearly been inspired by the next generation to create the Oroville. But I find it, it's, it's too long. It's doddering. It's sort of basic writing at best. And the characters, none of them feel totally believable. They all feel like actors playing a character to me. And um, I can't get past any of that. And yet I hear so much praise for it. And I always wonder, like, there's things I come across in life that I think are kind of second rate and sort of a cheap knockoff. But then I'll hear other people praise it like it's so fantastic. You know, there's a little bit of this with iOS and Android for years. And I always struggle with that because people will make really good points. And I'll be like, yeah, I can see why it appeals to you. And I'm glad you enjoy it because I am glad they enjoy it. So I've only seen like one episode of The Orville. And for me, it was, I also don't like it. It was the tone. And then I read the description in, uh, in whatever it was, Apple, where I bought it. The word dramedy is always like a big red flag for me because it, it the tone, it always, you know, you have to pick one. Like Discovery is like getting lectured on Twitter. Sorry, had to do it. So they've dropped the comedy component in the latest season. Um, I mean, there's a few laughs here and there, but just like one-liners. But yeah, I, I kind of would have liked to have seen them embrace the comedy aspect of it more but and just go all in on that. But they didn't, which is fine. But they're they're like, so they're doing social stories like Trek tries to do. But it's like somebody imitating a Trek version of social commentary. So it's just really bonk, bonk on the nose. You know, sometimes you could watch an episode of Trek that's doing social commentary and you could take away the message without even thinking about like the comp- the realities of like, I don't know, like without doing without doing analogies in your head to current day. Like you could take the message in without the bias of a current day filter. And I thought they really like sort of masterfully would would strike that balance in Trek. Not always, but when they did, they'd, they'd really strike the balance where it wasn't bonk bonk on the head, but there was a message there. That is not the case with Orville. It's like smack you upside the head. Well, see, that's my criticism of Discovery, that it's such a freaking lecture the whole time. I, I don't know. I think it, I think we're in a period of just. I mean, Star Trek was also always kind of moralizing, even the stuff that's like super cringeworthy from the original series. There was lecturing in that. It's just the the values have changed so much that we consider it bad. Like, remember, Captain Kirk is supposed to be super honorable. You're supposed to think he's like it's not supposed to be cringe. There is a like in in one of the best episodes of uh, the original series where they're fighting the Romulans in sort of that submarine episode. There's a guy sitting at Chekhov station and he's kind of a Vulcan racist and Kirk gives him quite the dressing down and tells him, you know, there's no room for racism on this bridge, you know, and, you know, you get rid of that right now. Like they address it head on. And I I think today we might interpret that as being lectured at, but, you know, they did it back in the 60s. But it was also sort of like the style, like Kirk gives him like a dressing down, like you listen up, mister. And, you know, it's like it's not like Kirk isn't crying and like giving like this close up to the camera where he's like breathing into the lens it's he snaps at the guy on the bridge right he's not asking for empathy he's not asking for everybody to understand each other he's it's just like your dad yelling at you right like 
I don't care what you think. Just do it. You behave, mister. Yeah. You get your act together. And I think you and I have both definitely done that more than once to our kids. <laughs> uh, anyways, let us know what you think. I thought I thought overall Strange New Worlds was great. I really I think it's it. awesome. It, it, you know what? I've read the criticism that it's like Star Trek by the numbers, but Discovery is so damn weird. And I, I, the cartoon one I haven't seen yet, but... I thought that season finale of Strange New Worlds was very clever. I thought it was awesome, right? I Although I did like more, more spoilers. I really liked the blue dude, the Andorian dude. Oh, yeah, the engineer. Yeah, I did too. Yeah, the Renfair episode was super weird. I think they're making room for Scotty. They're going to bring in Scotty? I think so. I mean, they. I would imagine if they've got a seven-year plan, I bet you they just slowly start incorporating... They already the orig- have a seven-year plan? No, I mean, if they did, right? If they have like a, If they have a multi-year plan, why wouldn't you just like start incorporating the TOS cast... Because, like, then you get fanfare every time you bring back one of the classics. Well, you got to get it right. With Uhura, which, by the way, you know, rest in peace. Well, and they brought back, they brought back a significant character from TOS in the season finale. And uh, they played the voice of a significant character from TOS in the season finale. Yes, they did. So I think, you know, you'll see that. And they'll sort of be building up to, like, Kirk's Enterprise. And they'll get a bunch of PR buzz every time they bring one of these characters back. And they'll spark a whole debate of it. Are they good enough? Are they like the character? You know, the whole thing. They're going to milk it. It's, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. I don't know how I'm going to like it as a Trek fan. But, you know, putting my producer hat on, mm, chef's kiss. Brilliant. You, you know what it is? Strange New World is not trying to be the next generation. Where Discovery is like taking all the, the next generation kind of more political, progressive, whatever, and just turning it up to 11. Strange in the World is trying to be the original series, just like, you know, not get protested against, right? <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's hewing the line. It, it's recognizable. It's, uh, you know, that one episode with the Romulans was beat for beat, the episode from the original series. Go ahead. They did, it was great. And they're also, they're adding a new visual style that I think is, is brighter, fantastic. it's better. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's more in line with the Trek universe. And so that all comes together. And I like all the characters. They all seem like good actors. They all seem like believable people in those roles. They all seem like, you know, like they really are those people. And they actually seem to have pretty decent chemistry, too, which they don't always manage. I don't necessarily. That chemistry feels forced in the uh, Discovery. In Discovery, yeah. Yeah, crew. But anyways. All right. Well, um, they're all better than Babylon 5. So, (laughs) which is still just awful. With that incendiary, is there anywhere you want to send people before we get out of here? Yeah, go watch Strange New Worlds. Do it. All right. Do it. You know, you can also follow him on Twitter at Domenuku, the company at Mad Botter Inc. I'm at Chris Elias. This show here at Coda Radio Show. Links to what we talked about today? Oh, yeah. Coda.show slash 478. You'll find them over there. Also, our RSS feed. So if you want to just get this show every single week, that's there too. And then last but not least, I invite you to join us live at Jupiter.tube on Mondays, noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. Come join us. Help us title the thing and hang out. Anyways, with all that, thanks for joining us on this week's episode of the Coda Radio Program. See you next week. 